Let's take our Bibles. Turn to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. As we pick back up with our study in the book of Titus, Titus being, being a book that outlines for us important features of what a healthy church should look like. And at the first set of teaching that Paul offers to Titus is about leadership in the life of the church. We started this two weeks ago. Last week we took just a bit of a break as we uh, talked about the Lord's Supper and then uh, gathered around the Lord's table together. And this morning we'll continue then our study on what, what makes for healthy leadership. Titus chapter 1, we'll, be, we'll read verses 5 through 9. But just so you know, ahead of time, we once again will not get out of verse 5. All right? Okay? Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless. As a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. It is a story that unfortunately has been repeated on several occasions, especially over the last 20 or more years. An energetic effective pastor either plants a church or takes the reins of a struggling church and things turn around. That's not the unfortunate part. As things turn around and there's energy invested into church life, people begin to join, money begins to flow. Unfortunately, in some of the instances I'm thinking about, what can happen is given the success of said leader, either formally and by design or informally, because he becomes the face of the church and becomes the one who bears on his shoulders, again, whether intentionally or not, much of the credit for the church's success, said leader begins to emerge as the final say on life in the church. In fact, it reaches a point where the head decision maker, the, the pastor, not only is making decisions and directing both, both people and, and those resources, but also financial resources, and it appears that he is unaccountable to anyone. 
I mean, granted, the church technically would have hired him and may have recourse to fire him, but given success, given membership up, given money is up, they are reluctant to challenge what's happening. But no matter how effective, no matter how uh, fast-growing an organization may be, there's going to be conflict. And in this scenario, as the conflict begins to emerge, individuals who want to try and find some kind of way to address their issues find themselves being stonewalled. They, they have no access to the lead pastor. Oh, they are shuffled along to somebody else, but, but in terms of getting an audience with the one that they have the conflict with, it seems to not be an option. And then... Accusations start. Accusations perhaps of moral failure. Sometimes it is financial misconduct. At other times it is uh, tactics that are manipulative and, and, and bullying kinds of approaches to leadership. Maybe sometimes it's even all three. And then you begin to notice a trend Staff turnover seems unusually high. It, it seems like a bit of a revolving door. And at the same time, as you look around in the congregation, faces familiar to you from years ago, maybe even from the starting of the church, they're not there anymore. But nobody really notices. Again, because there's so many new people coming in, it doesn't get noticed. In fact, you find that with every attempt to try and address issues you have with leadership, not only are you stonewalled, but suddenly you find yourself on a list of names disfellowshipped from the church. Cries of, touch not the Lord's anointed, can be heard from those who support the pastor. A phrase which, by the way, does not apply to my position some will say it does, it does not. Eventually, though, this set of circumstances reaches a point where the conflict begins to take its toll on the church itself. And now, after more and more incidences begin to occur and more and more evidence piles up of this autocratic, almost dictatorial approach to leadership, then people start to leave, and then the biggest problem of all, the money starts to dry up. Now, things are a real mess. And here's usually how the story ends. The pastor probably has a parachute. He probably gets a pretty soft landing somewhere else. He's got friends He's got influence. He'd made a name for himself. The church, however, if it does not close its doors, can often spend years struggling through the chaos that's left behind. 
Now, to be fair, that's not a story that repeats itself in every single church where there is a singular senior pastor, but that has happened time and time again. Now I want you to consider that same scenario, except now, rather than having a senior pastor, sole leader, the one who's at the top CEO model kind of leadership, now let's assume that there is a plurality of pastors. God called qualified men fulfilling the appropriate expectations and qualifications laid out in Scripture, that group of men all bearing the title pastor, and while inevitably there may be one among them who gets most of the preaching, who becomes the face of the church, and maybe even might be a lead among leaders, nonetheless this group functions as a group where they are accountable to one another. These are faithful, God-qualified men. And now you have systems and processes in place where whether from the congregation or from amongst this group of pastors themselves, should there be some kind of conflict, should there be some kind of stepping out of bounds, there is clarity and process for addressing potential abuses in power. Those who may be seemingly wandering astray, those who may be engaging in actions that are contrary to what is expected of a man who would be leading in the church. I wonder how these circumstances then would change things. And I, and I would contend that they would. I would contend in this set of circumstances, now you have an opportunity to address that which otherwise can kill a church. Now, again, before we go much further, let me be clear. There are churches that have a senior pastor, and they've not endured the scenario I just laid out. And at the same time, there have been churches led by a plurality of elders that have turned toxic and dysfunctional. But those would be exceptions, I would contend. That if a church is to commit herself to being faithful to God's Word and, and committed to a healthy form of church leadership, I, I would contend that then to have a group of God-qualified men fulfilling biblical expectations for pastor, a church puts herself in a far better position to move forward in faithfulness and obedience to fulfill God's expectations for His church. This morning, we turn our attention once again to Titus chapter 1, and we deal with this issue. We are going to deal with the single issue of the plurality of elders. All right, see what I did there? The single issue of the plurality of elders. And what we're going to do this morning is, is continue on a study that we started two weeks ago. Looking at Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 16, Paul lays out for Titus both qualifications and responsibilities for leadership in the church. And he wants to make sure that as Titus is responsible for church support, strengthening churches on the island of Crete, churches that are in every city, according to what we just read, he, he wants to make sure that not only do they have all that they need in order to be healthy, but that they're well-led. And so it, it's fitting that, that the letter would begin. Paul's first instructions to Titus are about this issue. What does healthy leadership look like in the church? And so we can be a healthy church, effective in God's mission when we commit to His plan for leadership. So we've been asking and answering four questions. The first question we asked was two weeks ago. 
What is an elder? So, so we started off with this topic because this may sound strange to some in the room, especially if born and raised like me, Baptist or in tradition that did not use the word elder. Paul begins this instruction by saying, for this reason I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders. So I thought the first question we should ask and answer, what is an elder? Well, an elder is a qualified man of maturity and giftedness used by God provide formal leadership in the church. I would remind you the word elder is not necessarily related to age. It's not related to age. There indeed can be somebody quite old who still lives quite foolishly. Can be. You know them, right? And you shouldn't look at the person next to you, all right? I mean, but you may know them, all right? Those who have age, that doesn't necessarily guarantee you've made a lot of wise decisions in your life. Instead, this is speaking of spiritual maturity, right? This is speaking of those who fulfill the qualifications, expectations laid out in God's Word and being faithful to it. And so we spent time then noting that the Bible uses three words to describe my role. The word elder, the word pastor, and the word bishop. Sometimes the word bishop is translated as overseer. These are all the same position. These are used as synonyms, and I laid out that case two weeks ago. If you are not with us two weeks ago, then I would invite you to the Uh, to our church's website, and you can feel free to watch said sermon. Now we get to the second question. That's a pretty simple one. How many elders should there be? Simple answer? I'd say more than one. Complicate it just a bit? I would really say probably more than two. Three or more, I would contend, begins to get to a pattern that I would say reflects the biblical material. Now, notice then what what it says here in Titus. Again, we're going to look at some other verses. We're just not going to get very far in Titus, all right? Because here's what I'm assuming, that for some folks in the room, this is going to sound really different. For others, not so much. You know, the nature of life now is that we draw people from all kinds of backgrounds and denominations. So, for some of you, you'd say, oh, this is a no-brainer. All right, I, I'm in. I get it. I, yeah, that's right. But for others, like myself, this would have been totally foreign to me as a concept. All right? So that's why we're going to take our time. Now, you may say, Pastor, that's all you ever do is take your time. All right. But we've got time. All right, so notice what he says again, verse 5. So after he tells him to set things in order that are lacking, he says, appoint elders in every city. The word appoint, by the way, is just a word that means to set into place. And I would contend what is probably happening on Crete is that Titus serves as missionary support for the church planting efforts. It's been going on for some 30 years. And that Titus much like Paul does when he goes around and visits the churches he'd already started uh, on his other missionary journeys, Titus is charged by Paul with, with the responsibility of coming alongside these churches and helping them continue to set things in order. When it says a point, I do not think this means Titus himself found somebody from some other location and brought him down to some unknown church in some unknown city and put him in place. I would say what's happening is Titus is visiting these churches in these cities, 
and from among them is helping them set in place those who would serve as elder. All right, so I don't want to get lost in that term, but I think that's what's being described here. It's really the next phrase. Appoint elders in every city. Now, you, you, don't, you don't need some drawn-out um, education in Greek grammar. Hopefully, no matter how bad you think you are at grammar, we would at least get the distinction of elders in every city. Plural, elders, city, singular. Now, a gut reaction may be, well, the pastor. <laughs> I mean, look at New Bern. How many churches do we have in New Bern? A lot. I don't know. A lot. It wasn't true on Crete, or in Ephesus, or in Antioch, or in Jerusalem in the first century. Do you know how many, how many churches every city had? One. One. So when he says, appoint elders in every city, what he means is, elders in each church that's in that city. So he's using the plural here, and I would contend this begins to reveal to us a pattern that shows up in the rest of the New Testament. That that when it comes to the way the first century church was developed, that the New Testament identifies for us this structure. And and I'll tell you what you don't find explicitly in the New Testament. You don't find an example of a senior pastor running the show. In fact, you don't find ever, by the way, you never find an instance in the New Testament where pastors, elders, bishops, overseers, where they are distinguished from one another. There's not an instance where where there's like a, a, a real grown-up pastor and then junior pastors, all right? Where there's like a senior pastor, otherwise known as senior pastor and associate pastors, all right? So big boy pastors and then those who maybe one day would be big boy pastors, all right? So that it never shows up that way. Pastors are just labeled as that, pastors. Now, but I, I want to flesh this out just a little bit. This isn't in your notes. You'd have to take this down. You say, where am I supposed to put this on the bulletin? I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Do your best, all right? That's all I can say. But if you want to look up these verses and look them up yourself, that's what I would encourage you to do. So you'd make sure your pastor is doing his job, all right? Being faithful to the text. Because I do think this pattern emerges. So if we go, if we go on to the next slide, there's several, several verses we're going to look at. Again, we're going to do it fairly quickly. I'm just trying to show a pattern here. All the way back in the earliest efforts of the church after Paul joins the mission, Acts chapter 14, verse 23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every city with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This, by the way, is Paul and Barnabas. And so they're doing the same thing that Paul told Titus to do. In in these regions, Antioch in particular, they they are then appointing, notice the plural, elders in every church. Singular. Next one. If you were to read Acts chapter 15, this is the Jerusalem council. 
and not to get sidetracked by this, but this is the gathering of the church in Jerusalem along with the apostles and along with Paul to settle the issue, what do we do with all these Gentiles getting saved? Do they basically have to convert to Christ and Judaism at the same time? With the Jerusalem council coming in and, and you know, Paul advocating, absolutely not. This is the fundamental point of the book of Galatians. What's interesting, though, is you'll find verses 4, 6, and 22 all refer to the elders in the church at Jerusalem. And though we have evidence that James exhibits a leader among leaders kind of posture, the way the church leadership is referred to is as elders in the one church. Then Acts chapter 20, this is Paul before he's going on to Jerusalem, so we're getting years away now, years later in the history of the church. Paul calls for the elders at the church at Ephesus. Before he goes on to Jerusalem, he wants to give them some final instruction. And he calls them elders. Calls out, and again, plural, elders in the one singular church in Ephesus. All right, next. Philippians chapter 1, verse 7, Paul writing to the church in Philippi, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Now you might see that there's some logic to the way your pastor operates. Why define the word elder as being synonymous with pastor and bishop? Well, here you go, all right? Because that's, that's how the New Testament uses it. In this case, Paul refers to the bishops. Some translations may use the word overseer. But you'll note, plurality of bishops. And this is what's interesting to me about the topic. You'll also notice there's a plurality of deacons, right? Just a little side note. Have you ever heard anybody in a Baptist church argue for not having a plurality of deacons? Well, no. No, no, no one says, well, a church should only have one pastor, uh, so a church should only have one deacon. No, we've never, we've never, there's no argument for that, not that I know of. I mean, there could be, it's the church, all right? So in a church history, maybe somebody out there made that argument. The only time that would take place is if said church didn't have enough people to fulfill the qualifications of deacon, which, by the way, could be why there's a number of churches that don't have more than one pastor, they don't have enough people that fulfill the qualifications and obligations of being a pastor. All right, next one. Just so you know, it's not just Paul who's got some kind of plurality bee in his bonnet, all right? Peter then says this. He addresses the elders who are among the people. He also uses the plural for the word elders. And so James himself, chapter 5, verse 14, calls the elders of the church to come and to pray over those who are sick. So again, this New Testament pattern definitely emerges that, that we, have, we have the church being led in the first century by more than one. And there seems to be no distinction made among them other than the distinction that may be drawn from themselves and their giftedness, a point I'll get to here in just a minute as we close this thing out. By the way, you know who else organized his ministry this way? Jesus. Jesus did. 
did he call an apostle? No. He called 12 of them. Now, we recognize Peter does bear some unique influence as being the one who preached Pentecost. But is there ever a case, and what you'll find, you read, you read throughout the New Testament, with the exception of specific stories about Peter or John, you will find the apostles are just referred to as a group. So, so even, even then, the mission that Jesus entrusts to the church is entrusted to a plurality of leadership. Now again, this contrasts with what I would argue is a portrait of church leadership that developed in earnest post-World War II. And it, and it develops alongside of the efficiency of a business model. It also develops alongside of growth in the church in places where there were not qualified people to serve. So these two things are both going on at the same time. And it's during this time then that churches become organized. By the way, this is the same time when we see churches adopting beyond statements of faith, constitutions and bylaws, as churches become incorporated, and this is for a lot of reasons, nonprofit status, uh, trying to protect itself, you know, against lawsuit, you know, legal things, but at the same time then you see the rise then of this portrait of church life, senior pastor, if you're looking at a flow chart, right, senior pastor, and then lines and boxes underneath, perhaps you have other associate pastors underneath, and maybe somewhere, depending on how you view these things, there is maybe deacons somewhere. It's possible then underneath this would be committee chairs uh, and that kind of thing. Now, I recognize, by the way, I'm just assuming that we all realize who's the head of the church. Jesus, okay. And in our context, we are a congregationally ruled church. We are locally autonomous. No other group outside of us tells us what to do. We make our own decisions, all right? So aside from that, though, recognizing that as an influence in organizational structure, this is often what it looks like. Put one guy at the head, and then it just flows from there. So a CEO with executive staff, and under each executive person is probably some specific department in the business, right? product development, research, uh, financing, uh, marketing, you know, whatever the case may be, this is kind of what it looks like. And, and, I, and I would contend that that has not been the traditional model of the church. In fact, I would say there seems to be great wisdom in developing a pattern where there is a plurality of elders, where you have more than one and ideally more than Two pastors who are responsible then for fulfilling the roles and obligations given to the pastor. Now, this next part, so this is for those, maybe like me, who'd been raised in a context where this is brand new. And I'm going to speak especially to my fellow Southern Baptists who've been that, you know, their, their whole lives. This may sound strange. In fact, this is often what happens. Pastor, that doesn't sound very Baptist to me. Some might even say, Pastor, that sounds Presbyterian to me. You know what I have found about the traditions we want to uphold? We want to uphold the traditions that we grew up with. It's, that's what we do. 
That's what we do. In other words, it's not that we're saying that's not Baptist. We're saying that's not how I understood Baptist when I grew up Baptist. That's what it means. It's not because it's some better model. It's just a way of saying this just isn't what we did, and the assumption being there's a period of time when we did it a certain way, and that was the best way. By the way, just a little shout out. This is for Pastor John. Folks do this with music too, right? They do the same thing with music. They assume, well, this is what I grew up with, so this is the best. All right. So, getting past that, all right, is it true this isn't Baptist? Well, let me give you… I'm glad you asked. Thank you for asking the question. Let me give you some answers to this. I've got some quotes. William B. Johnson, who was the pastor of First Baptist Church Anderson, South Carolina, he was the first president of the SBC in 1845 wrote a book called The Gospel Developed Through the Government and Order of the Church of Jesus Christ. Now, that's, a, that's, that's sure to fly off the shelves, right? You're now thinking, I've got to buy this book. Okay. What I would have you notice, though, is he very much believed, and as Southern Baptists were developing, and as they were sending missionaries, especially across the United States, planting churches, they were very concerned in this period of time with making sure our ecclesiology was solid, meaning what we believed about how the church should be formed. And so, Johnson very much believed that in order for the gospel to succeed, that the church needed to be well-developed. And so, that over each church of Christ in the apostolic age, a plurality of rulers was ordained who were designated by the terms elder, bishop, overseer, pastor with authority in the government of the flock. So again, that's what he's saying, plurality of elders. This is what the New Testament pattern seems to have. All right, let's go on to another one. J.L. Reynolds, he was the pastor of Second Baptist Church in Richmond, also heavily involved in the formation of the Southern Baptist Convention. In his book titled Church Polity, Permanent officers of a church are of two kinds, elders, who are also called pastors, teachers, ministers, overseers, or bishops, and deacons. Then he goes on to say the apostolic churches were, the apostolic churches seem in general to have had a plurality of elders as well as deacons. Let me give you one more. William Williams, I'm not sure why you'd do that. Anyway, but that's what they did. That's what they did. That's what their family did. All right? And if somebody's like that, I'm not judging. I'm just saying. It's just so just seems like lowest common, it's low-hanging fruit kind of there. Okay, I don't know what to name the kid. William. William. William Williams. All right. Who was one of the founding faculty of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. John makes me say that. All right. Here's what he said in his book, Apostolic Church Polity. Again, I know, page turners. In most, if not all, the apostolic churches, there was a plurality of elders. The circumstances of the early churches rendered such an arrangement very advantageous, if not absolutely necessary. So again, this is not new. This is not new. Furthermore, all the original um, attendees of the 1845 Southern Baptist Convention in Augusta, Georgia, they also had the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, which also advocates for this form of church government. Even our Baptist faith and message, 2000, if you were to read the statement on church, says there are two offices in the church, pastors and deacons. Now, now, the Baptist Faith of the Message 2000 is written very carefully, so it doesn't leave out those who wouldn't organize this way. 
Nonetheless, it does identify then what I would say is a plurality here, an approach that would say there should be more than one. So, made a a biblical argument, made a historical argument. If that doesn't work, let me finish with this. Let me just get really practical. I think there are some good reasons why this is beneficial. Maybe you would disagree with them, all right? But this is what I want you to consider as we bring this to a close this morning. Benefits of a plurality of elders. Number one, it improves decision-making. I mean, the Proverbs tells us that we are wise when we have a multitude of counselors, right? In a multitude of counselors, there is wisdom. Why wouldn't that be true for pastors? It seems to me, if you want to make sure that much thought and maybe even thought where there are those, you know, suggesting other paths and other ideas. In other words, where there is a real sense of different ideas coming together in order to make a wise decision, it seems like broadening out those who are involved in leadership would, would enable this. So it improves, I would contend, decision-making. Now, I recognize on, one, on the other hand, some would say, nope, one guy in charge making the final decision, that is efficient. Yes, it's efficient until it's not, until all of a sudden said guy does something really wonky, Right? It's a formal theological term, okay? Which can happen. I know you look at me and think, Pastor, you're just the fountain of wisdom and winsomeness, and we just don't, okay, I know, it won't happen here. All right, we're just saying, so it could, right? We want to make sure we're doing this well. Number two, maintains better accountability. This, this is what can happen. If, if too much Authority is invested in one person, whether formally or informally, then this can contribute then to somebody kind of separating himself from among the rabble, right? Above reproach, meaning above anybody actually trying to criticize. You can hear then of churches where, where the pastor is then inaccessible. You got, you've got to go through other people to get to him. These kinds of things so, so it improves accountability to have other men qualified with the same biblical authority than, than to hold them accountable. Quite frankly, I, I can't think of a reason why this would be bad, to be honest. Other than the person who said, I'm just not used to it, just not comfortable with it. But I would think expanding out the number just creates accountability. Also, it enables more efficient ministry. Here's what I mean by this. Part of the problem with the CEO model assumes that the pastor is going to have every single one of the gifts. We've got to have them all. We've got to exercise them all. We've got to exercise them all in the church by only working 40 hours a week, but working all the time and making sure our family is fully supported and healthy and functioning, Right? This, this, is what, this is what can happen. The pastor's got to then be everything, do everybody. Again, you look at me and say, Pastor, you're so gifted. All right, okay, I know, all right. I get, if you're a visitor, I understand. I'm just snarky. I'm not that arrogant. Truth be told, I understand what I can do well. 
And, and I understand among a plurality, is it, is it probably going to be where I, I still would be kind of the, as much, it is what it is, the face of the church. Oh man, oh, that's terrifying. All right, but that is what it is. And, and, and you know, I understand uh, where, where I can preach and teach. But are there other areas in where I would be weak? Well, I'll tell you, one of them would be administration. Now, don't tell everybody else that. I'm just telling you because you came, all right, on Sunday morning. It's not that I can't and don't do it, but wouldn't it be wise, though? Is it possible that one guy is going to have all the stuff? No! No! And so it enables more efficient ministry. It allows people to serve according to their giftedness in a way that's then a blessing to other pastors, a blessing to the church, and is faithful to God's call in their life. It also helps more people connect with leadership. Here's another. I, decide, I, I was skeptical of whether or not I'd say this, but you know, you'll, you'll love it, all right? So that's why I'm going to say it. You know, I had somebody tell me years ago one time, well, Pastor, you know, Scott Gleason isn't everybody's cup of tea. And I thought, oh, wow, okay, all right, okay, yes, uh, I, okay, I get that. Um, I understood what they meant, though, that the truth is, if you have a church of any size, now there would be some discussion on what size that would be, but get a church big enough And is every single person going to be able to have the same kind of relationship with the one single head pastor? Seems like a real challenge. And truth be told, some of you may not want to. Again, I know you're not saying anything negative necessarily about me. I just mean, it's the way we are. So I would contend having more that you identify with would only be better. That somebody would then say, well, i got to be honest, I, uh, talking to the pastor, he's, you know, because, again, he's just so smart and charming. That's intimidating to me, all right? So I'm, I'm going to talk to Pastor Aaron. <laughs> See, now in an elders meeting, they would hold me accountable for saying stuff without thinking about it, all right? That's what would happen. No, but, but really, would it not be true that there would be, you, you might say, well, you develop a relationship with, one, with another pastor? And it may not even be, by the way, a full-time vocational one. Understand what I mean when I say plurality of elders. I think the best model would be those who are like us, full-time vocational, and adding to that those who are from among the membership. They may not have the same full set of responsibilities, but they fulfill the requirements of elder and provide then that kind of perspective to this body. That, to me, sounds really really healthy. And again, it would help more people connect. You would be able to say in the midst of whatever trial or trouble or difficulty, not not that I wouldn't then be glad to receive you and counsel and pray, but there may be somebody else that you just have a better relationship with. And so you'd be able to connect with them. And then finally, it provides better protection of the church. One of the, the responsibility of the pastor is to guard the flock. This is said over and over again. It was said to the church in Ephesus. Paul warned the elders there that there are going to be two threats. There will be wolves from outside who will try and get in and devour the sheep. And then there will be those from among you who will rise up and who will wreak havoc on the body of Christ. Part of the responsibility of elders is protective. Protecting against outside uh, uh, false teaching. Protecting then against that which comes from within the church that could be destructive to the church. So, so all of these things. Now, could there be other things you'd add to this list? Well, perhaps and almost certainly. But I, I would contend this, this is what makes this model 
a faithful and effective one. And say, all right, pastor, well, what, what now? What are you contending that we do? Be here for the rest of the sermons. Because <laughs> next week I'll answer the question, all right, well, what are pastors, elders supposed to do? Or, or actually, who, who qualifies? And then the next one will be, and what are they supposed to do? And then I'll address the issue, what does this look like then in our church? So all, all, these, all these will be addressed. But for now, here's what I'm asking. I'm asking you consider what the New Testament pattern seems to be. I'm asking that in prayer you ask yourself, what do we want Tabernacle Baptist Church to be? Because again, at the end of the day, guess whose church this is not? It does not belong to me. It does not belong to you. We are stewards of what's been entrusted to us. I want to be faithful to that stewardship. And, I want to, and how do I know if I'm faithful to that stewardship? Well, best I can tell, and I'm pretty good at telling, he's only written one book. It is his word. Because I know the history stuff, that's interesting, but that's not authoritative. But he has given us his word. So I want to be faithful to Christ the head of the church, the one who gave himself for her, that she might be pure, blameless, and spotless, a church without blemish. I want to be a faithful church, which means I want to be a church that honors God's Word. So that's what we pray for. That's what we ask for. We want to be a people who come under the authority of Christ. I'm asking you to trust Christ. I'm asking you to trust His Word. And to be a part of what it looks like to then be faithful. A healthy church will have healthy leadership. And this will then produce that which is effective in God's mission. And so I'll just make it personal. You as an individual, me as an individual. Are you, are you trusting in Christ? Is Christ the authority in your life? Are you trusting in His Word? So not only does the church need healthy leadership, but it needs healthy people. And to be healthy, we've got to be under the authority of Christ and under His Word. This is what matters the most. Are you under the authority of Christ? Now, there may be some here who are not, because you've never trusted in Christ as Savior. If you've never come to that place where you've confessed that you are a sinner, where you've confessed that Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead, where you've asked God to save you based on what Christ and Christ alone has done, I would implore you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. I would implore you to believe the gospel. If you want to know more about what that means, the pastors will be down front, and we'd love an opportunity to talk with you more about what it means to believe the gospel. If you'd say, no, I've done that, pastor. I've trusted. I'm in Christ. Then let us commit ourselves to being faithful to His Word, no matter the cost. No matter the cost to leadership, no matter the cost to membership, that He might be glorified in all things. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. After I pray, we will continue to sing about the goodness of our Savior toward us in His gospel. Father God, we do thank You for the gathering of Your church. We thank You for the privilege of being able to, to come together and to pray and to sing and to come under Your Word and, and, to, and to give. And Father, we want to be faithful. We thank You that Christ has done all that needs to be done, that we might be your people. His work is sufficient to save. And we thank you, God, that in saving us, you have formed us into the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the family of God, and we want to be faithful to the pattern you've established for us in your word. 
And so God, we do ask that you would continue to grant us wisdom and understanding that we would be a faithful church and that that comes down to then as individuals being faithful followers of Christ. So God, we pray you by your Spirit would bring your Word to bear on our lives that you would then use it to continue to make us the people you've designed us to be. That in all ways we might be faithful to you lifting high our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and bringing you great glory. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.